be very clear on this. Florida represents the greatest opportunity for the cannabis industry and the MSOs at large. And this is something you should absolutely be paying attention to because if Florida flips over, it is the single largest catalyst for basically the entire uh, public company domain of cannabis. If it were to pass this review, my opinion is that it is time to get excited. It is time to get bullish. Now, much is made of, of the fact that there's a 60% margin, right? Obviously, that's much harder than 50%. But, you know, the Florida medical program passed with more than 70% of the vote um, back in 2016. Um, polls show strong support for cannabis. Will it be an expensive campaign? Um, I believe yes. But in a presidential election year that has high turnout, I think it's very doable to get 60% of the vote. You know, we got 60% of the vote in Arizona four years ago. And, you know, barely, uh, barely 60. Yeah. But, you know, you got like 60.1 or something on the dot. Right. So a little room to spare. Um, <laughs> You're listening to the Cannabis Investing Network. Before we begin, a short disclaimer. The full disclaimer follows at the end of this episode. This podcast is a general communication and is being provided for entertainment and information purposes only. It is educational in nature and is not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment strategy, plan, feature, or other purpose. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello and welcome back to the Cannabis Investing Network podcast. My name is Manish. And oh, do we have a fun one for every everyone today. Joining us is the guru of the Gold Coast himself. His name is Hirsch Jane with Adonda Strategy. Hey, Manish. How's it going? Good. How you doing, buddy? Doing great. It's a beautiful day here in LA. Uh, it's 710, so there's a lot of fun events going on. Oh, yeah. Right. So yeah, doing great. Good. Well, glad to hear it's going well down there. Um, and you know, today, Hirsch, um, everyone I'm sure is itching and dying to talk yet again about safe banking and federal reform. And you know, will we get something to excite cannabis investors? Which it it looks like started a little bit last week and then kind of got snuffed out a little bit today. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead of getting lured into that siren song and uh, crashing our boats on the rocks inevitably, uh, as usually happens, today we're going to talk about state level developments. And, you know, as I've been spending a little bit less time on cannabis than I was, say, a year ago, which is probably true for most people, um, I really haven't been paying as much attention at the state level what's going on. Um, and yet there's a lot of juice there, right? That's that's really where we're getting some of these fundamental developments. Um, but luckily, I'm on the Hirsch Jane uh, email newsletter list where I get <laughs> I get kind of sporadic updates from you on what different programs are doing, which yeah. I very much appreciate. So I'm really glad to have you as someone I consider a subject matter expert on state level programs um, to kind of walk us through like what we're seeing overall, what there is to be excited about. Um, and and what's kind of on the horizon and, and what may be coming? Yeah, I mean, this will be a fun conversation. I think the state level developments are more interesting than the federal picture um, anywhere. Uh, anyway, so, yeah. And, you know, I think there's a pretty compelling state level story that is unfolding and has been unfolding throughout this year. We've seen it kind of in the first half of the year. And, you know, I think it'll continue over the, the next six months. And so, you know, it's it's worth taking some time to see how all of these pieces 
um, fit together and what that might mean going forward. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. We used to say, when I say used to, I mean, like maybe like we're talking 2021, you know, like the glory days. Mm-hmm. We used to say that um, the the federal backdrop is more of a sideshow and really we should pay attention to what's going on at the state level more. Mm-hmm. Right. And and that's kind of a competitive advantage that investors had if they paid attention, because if you paid attention, you could kind of see around the curve and figure out which companies are going to perform well. Um, and that's kind of been lost in the shuffle in the last year or so. Right. Now, everyone's everyone basically is like, hey, what's going to move these stocks? And the only thing really moving these stocks today is whenever we hear about safe banking. Yep. Right. That's that's the only thing that's that's happening. Um, and we'll talk a little bit also about international and you know Curaleaf and some M and A and and uh, how that's looking. But I want to really hit on you know some of the key states um, which we'll go through today. And I think just to kick it off, like let's start at you know what really has been the biggest and most positive news story of the last little while. Something that you were keeping me apprised of for many months and. Amazingly, a program that actually launched on time, and that is Maryland. So, Hirsch, talk to us a little bit about Maryland. Yeah, I mean, Maryland has had a very robust start to adult use sales, I think, as as many folks know. Um, They generated between medical and adult use sales more than $4 million in sales um, on the first day, which is a, a very healthy amount. And, you know, you mentioned we had been emailing back and forth about this for months. And that's because I think this is a very foreseeable success story. Um, Mm. Just like we knew Missouri was going to be a success six months ago, um, and just like I think we know Minnesota will be a success uh, going forward, I think it was evident that this was going to be uh, a successful state. And, you know, as I mentioned, sales on day one were really healthy, more than $4 million. And, um, you know, as you may know, there's about 100 stores uh, in Maryland. So if Mm -hmm. you just do some quick math, that means that, you know, the typical store generated about 40K um, in sales on that day one. Now, obviously, there are disparities. You know, some of these stores are, are, are near the, the borders. But what that means, right, is that these stores are operating at a $15 million run rate, right, on mm-hmm. average, which is very mm-hmm. healthy. Or even if you think, you know, day one sales are higher than what sales will look like going forward, I mean, that's at least a $10 million run rate for, for these stores. And so, you know, the, the market is already operating at, you know, close to a $1.5 billion uh, run rate. And, you know, as I noted, it has half the stores as Missouri, about 100 versus 200. And it has the same population of about um, 6 million people. But because Maryland is a much smaller state, just in terms of area, it's about one fourth the total area of Missouri. You know, it's, it's a very densely populated state. Basically, everybody in, in the state has access. So one of the primary reasons that the program is a success is that we had a quick transition from medical to adult use. And there are stores that are, you know, pretty evenly distributed geographically across the state. So that's one reason that, you know, the program has been a success. Um, but also Maryland very predictably um, saw very strong border traffic. And this is something that we could have anticipated and, and did anticipate with Missouri and also uh, anticipated it. Um, here with with Maryland. And so, you know, Maryland borders four states that don't have any legal adult use sales. Um, So that's Delaware, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Virginia, and West Virginia, and it also uh, borders uh, DC. And so, I mean, just predictably, there has been a huge influx of people from out of state that have been buying uh, cannabis in Maryland. 
that has you know generated very strong sales. And as we've seen in Missouri, one of the reasons that is good is that generates local political support. You know, the same reason that the conservative Missouri senators um, are are you know being supportive of cannabis and are likely to vote in favor of safe banking is just given how how much of an economic driver um, it has been. So that's beneficial for Maryland, but it also has a normalization effect on Maryland's neighboring states, right? These neighboring states see their tax revenue being lost to Maryland, the kind of absurdity that something is a legal product on one side of a state line, but is a felony on another side of the state line. So- And um, and just, yeah, and just to that point, I mean, you you know, you're you're right. Normalization is the right word because, um, you you know, the good side of that is that people just get used to it, right? Like it, it, you know, I'm here in Toronto and there's like a dispensary on every corner now. And, you know, initially there was a lot of pushback, like when the dispensaries exploded, um, just because there was one everywhere. And now people are just over it, right? It, they're kind of being rationalized pretty quickly and stores are shutting down, which is sad, but it's just part of the natural process. And people, people aren't really fussed by it anymore, right? So similarly, you know, like we saw in Illinois, people coming over the border, buying product, et cetera. Um, it, it's, it just, it just makes it more normal. I mean, that's the best way to put it. Now, one of the other things in terms of Maryland is I noticed, cause I, I kind of keep an eye on the prices. Um, the prices are actually a decent amount lower too, right? So if you think about Illinois, Illinois was a $65 an eighth market, um, pretty much right from the start. Um, and and that was plus taxes and taxes were kind of easily in the 30% plus mark. So all in, uh, you were something like an $80 eighth and that lasted for some time, right? Mm-hmm. And now prices have come down and you're probably more like a 35 to $45 eighth, depending. Mm-hmm. And you have pretty good availability of bulk and stuff like that. Um, but Maryland, and again, just, just going off menus that I'm seeing online, but you're kind of you're already into that, you know, 45, maybe, you know, 50 or 55 is like the high, high end, like a cookies mm-hmm. um, or like a reserve flower type of eighth. But I would say in general, you're probably something like 40 to 45 and you have bulk uh, availability. So you can buy smalls um, or you can buy, you know, a, a half ounce bag. Um, so you're, you're starting from uh, a lower price point, which look, once you start lower, you're not going back generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, but the good thing about that is I think it makes the numbers even more impressive. Right. Like no, to, I, to be an average $10 million dispensary run rate, it, and that's, I'm just assuming the those numbers, you know, are kind of too high and they come down to like, let's say a billion dollar run rate for the state. Um, that's pretty good at these prices. No, absolutely. I, I think you're right. You know, um, given that prices are lower than they are in a state like Illinois, that means that there's just a significant number of transactions going on. And if you look at headset data, for example, and you look at how you know sales and, and transactions have changed following adult use, you know, in some instances, there's more than three times the number of transactions taking place. And generally what we see when there's a transition from medical to adult use is you see between two to, to, to three times. But here we're seeing you know, numbers that, that are higher than that which I think is evidence of what you're talking about, that you know the prices are a little lower, but just the volume of transactions um, are, are quite high uh, in Maryland. Yeah, I was listening to um, uh, the High Rise podcast with Cy Scott and uh, Emily Paxi the other day, and uh, I think they were saying it was like three and a half times. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, Cy Scott is, is that headset and he has great access to data. Um, so that's really encouraging, obviously. Now, if we even if we estimate it normalizes down to like, say, two and a half, to three times, that's a phenomenal 
launch. And especially when you consider Maryland was a pretty robust medical market to begin with, mm-hmm. right? It, it's not like, like Illinois was really starting off from an underbuilt medical market and the doors just kind of blew off on day one. Um, and they had a lot of catching up to do. I don't think you're seeing that in Maryland, right? Kind of similar to Missouri. It was it was pretty well built out. Um, and then also the way capital is today, I don't think you're going to see as much scaling up as you did in Illinois. Um, yep. So that'll be interesting to see. Do you want to just talk quickly about the tax structure? Because, you know, Maryland's a blue state, right? So it, it's interesting that um, the taxes are pretty reasonable. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think that's what makes... Um, Maryland quite interesting is that it represents a departure from from a lot of uh, of blue states. And so the tax that Maryland imposed at the state level um, was 9%, which is much lower uh, than Illinois. And, you know, what is interesting is that the governor of Maryland, Wes Moore, um, said explicitly that this isn't about generating new tax revenue. And so he seems to be charting a new, more business friendly course on on cannabis policy in, in blue states, you know, suggesting that you know, a robust cannabis economy is not mutually exclusive with having um, an, an equitable uh, economy. And so obviously Maryland transitioned to adult use much more quickly than many of these other blue states. Um, and it has a much uh, lower tax structure than places like California or Illinois or New York, right? Um, which obviously, uh, you know, in some instances impose potency taxes in states like California, there's this phenomenon of double taxation where taxes compound on top of one another uh, for, for being uh, for being very high. And so, uh, you know, I, I give him credit for being more policy focused. And I, I guess what I mean by that, you know, you, you mentioned blue states. I think some of the governors in those blue states have engaged in, in what I would call a performative politics, hmm. right? They haven't been interested so much in the policy details. They have been more interested in saying, hey, I'm on the right side of this issue and communicating hmm. To their political constituency, whereas you know Governor Moore um, was much more policy focused and talked about the impact of different tax rates um, on um, on the legal and illicit market, and is less concerned with using that tax revenue to funnel it to sort of political constituencies that might support him in in a future uh, reelection. So um, I, I think I think that is a development that's really worth taking note of because it represents a big departure from other deep blue states. Yeah. And look, I mean, Westmore is a super interesting guy, like was literally on the board of GTI, mm-hmm. right? So has a pretty deep, I would assume has a deep understanding of the business of cannabis because of his position at GTI, right? So probably saw firsthand how some states kind of were over eager to tax it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that makes sense on day one. You're like, hey, we're going to, this is going to be a windfall. Let's tax it. Certainly it's done really well in Illinois. Um, but over time, it's sort of a losing proposition because, you know, now Illinois is is has lost a lot of that border business to Missouri, which, look, maybe it was inevitable. Um, but now you have all of these Illinois jobs at risk, right, through their dispensaries and their grows. Um, and that's at the end of the day, like, yes, taxes are important, but jobs are also very important. Yep. No. So so just to wrap it up on uh, Maryland. So, look, almost. Every major MSO has a pretty strong presence there. One of the really interesting stories is Terrasend, mm-hmm. who's been on an absolute tear, just just acquiring dispensaries to get to their cap. Uh, one of the things I read that I would love your opinion on, Hirsch, is I read something that these licenses, once they've been... Con- so, so it seems like there was a use it or lose it provision about converting to adult use. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't convert and pay the fee, you lost the ability to convert to adult use. So... I imagine all 100 dispensaries converted. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also read something about the fact that there was a, a no ability to transfer licenses for five years. Um, but then when I look at Terrasend, you know, they closed these acquisitions right before um, going wreck. Uh, but then there was one that I think was just closed today um, or certainly after the, the July 1st deadline. So I'm a little confused about that. Do you have any insight into that? Yeah. So, I mean, first and foremost, Maryland has a four uh, store cap. So that's the maximum number of stores you can have mm-hmm. uh, in, in Maryland. And that um, helps explain sort of the acquisition spree that Terrasend has been on um, over the past uh, month or so. And um, you're right. I mean, what the what the law states is that, you know, both like newly issued cannabis licenses, the new licenses that Maryland will presumably issue later this year and next year, um, and licenses that have been converted from medical to adult use, you know, um, there's a prohibition on transferring, you know, the way that the law is written, um, any ownership or any control of the license uh, for at least five years uh, following licensure. And there are really narrow exceptions to that, say, um, if if an owner um, sort of uh, uh, passed away. So I, I did see today the headline that Terrasend um, closed its, its uh, sort of fourth uh, sort of transaction. I don't know if that was permissible because they submitted the paperwork, say, um, before July 1st. But um, yes, that that is the way that the law is written. And it's it's very unique uh, in, in in that respect. So so based on your understanding of, of the law, um, that is the correct interpretation that that now, like if you were to try to do a deal today, you could not do a deal. Correct. Yes, that, that that's my understanding. Um, so it's a really funny thing, because like, if that is the case, that basically prohibits any M&A between MSOs that have a Maryland overlap, right? Unless you just shut down your dispensaries. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I will say I watched the hearing in which this rule was being discussed, and there wasn't really a clear rationale offered for this rule. What the state regulator essentially said is that we have too much to deal with already. We don't have to deal with this license transfer process. There also isn't you know, uh, so that, that that's essentially what they said. So I could see a world in which this changes going forward, right? Um, in the same way that Massachusetts one day may modify, you know, it's it's three dispensary cap. Um, similarly, this might uh, change in, in Maryland. But you're right. That's the way that the law is, is written today. Many of, you know, the MSOs in the state have already hit that four dispensary cap. Um, obviously, Terrasend, but also, you know, large operators like Cureleaf, um, GTI, you know, well, both- well, so Hirsch, where I'm going with this though is the Cresco and Columbia Care merger, right? Um, that had a drop dead date of June 30th. Yeah. And uh, you know, Columbia Care has dispensaries, um, and Cresco doesn't. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So theoretically, even if they could put that thing back together, um, that they couldn't move those Maryland licenses. Yeah, that, that's a good point. That's something that I, I hadn't thought of. Um, but. Um... But yeah, I think that according to the way the law is written, that might not be uh, permissible. Yeah, interesting. So that'll be interesting to look at. Um, any final thoughts, Hirsch, on Maryland? I, I remember someone telling me, and, and I hadn't verified this, but uh, there's no ca- uh, canopy cap on square footage. Yeah, um, I'll just say, you know, going back to our, our just the conversation we were we were just having, I will. I do think it's worth noting that in certain states. Um, the regulators have read their rules in in sort of permissive ways. So there's the store cap in Pennsylvania for mm-hmm. that isn't being followed by a lot of the MSOs there. There is the five dispensary cap in Missouri. So I think we could see a world in which it, this changes and, and we'll have to see how that unfolds. 
Yeah, and uh, for for example, it could be that you know the license transfer could be that you're not actually transferring the license, but I'm buying the holding company that owns the license, right? That's one way. If they want to be flexible, theoretically, they could do it. Right. No, absolutely, and that's often what we see in California, where you know the transferring of the license is prohibited, but as you said, you know the the entity is is acquired. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're correct, right? There aren't the same canopy caps uh, there are in Maryland as there are in Illinois. I know SunMed Growers, for example, which I think is one of the largest operators in the state, is almost near half a million uh, square feet um, of wow. canopy. And so I think that helps explain, right, in part, uh, why prices are a little bit lower in Maryland than in Illinois, just because there's more supply and um, Illinois supply obviously has been quite restricted. It'll be interesting to see, right, because that is really a vestige of a time gone by. Like to have a half a million feet of canopy. Now, I'm just going to take a guess that there's probably a lot of greenhouse in there because that's a lot of footage. Mm-hmm. Um, you just don't need half a million square feet for a population of six million people right. <laughs> in today's world, right? It's just, it is, it is, there's no way you're going to be able to move that much product. People aren't going to accept your product um, to that degree. And so I just don't see that being um, super helpful. Uh, but it's going to be interesting to see how that how that plays out. Uh, yeah. I noticed here on the notes you mentioned um, you mentioned the I ninety five. Yeah, I mean, you know, I ninety five, the highway that goes from Florida right all the way up the East Coast, is the most traveled national highway in the United States. And hmm. obviously, this is a little bit more qualitative. But anyone who has spent time in that region of the country knows the number of people who live in North Carolina, South Carolina, right, and have relatives in Maryland, uh, for instance. And it's just kind of a, a straight shot there. And particularly during the summer, you'll see a lot of people, you know, going up there to to vacation. So obviously a little bit more qualitative, but it is very easy in those prohibition states in the South to drive up a few hours um, on that highway and, and access cannabis. So I think that in combination with the fact that the area surrounding Maryland is you know, arguably the most densely populated region of the United States um, bodes well uh, for for sales going forward. So, I think that's important. And one other thing that I'll I'll just note is that you know Maryland is the state with the most federal employees of any state uh, in the country. Hmm. And so, we'll have a huge normalization effect on those folks. And I think it's interesting. You know, in recent weeks, we've seen headlines in the Washington Post, for instance, that says. Cannabis is legal in, you know, Maryland, D.C. and in Virginia. Can my employer test me? And I think (laughs) articles are evidence of just the the conversation that's happening here. And maybe the way I would put it is, you know, a couple of years ago when the Northeast Corridor was opening up, the New Yorks and the New Jerseys, there was much talk about how when financial people were able to buy cannabis legally, that would change, say, the stigma and that might lead to uplisting, right? There was a lot of talk of how, you know, opening up legal cannabis in the financial center of the United States um, would be really consequential. Now, I think we haven't really seen that come to pass in part because in many of those states, very few stores have opened, right? There's 50 stores or or less than that between New York and and New Jersey. But I think where that may be more true is in the political center of the United States, right? Um, In in, in the heart of the government apparatus, we could see uh, a real normalization taking place, which I think would be more consequential than the one that was discussed in the, in say, the financial center. Yeah, you know, I'm someone who thought that, you know, New Jersey flipping over, for example, would have a big impact. Um, but uh, from from that point, I mean, the media, the the financial people, etc. You know, it's really been a dud, right? Um, from not from a financial perspective, it's been great. But I mean, from from my theory of, of attracting 
um, you know, financial people to the to the story. Um, now that being said, you know, it could be timing. You know, we we went wreck in New Jersey for four twenty in um, uh, twenty twenty two, and you know, shortly after the financial world started to fall apart, right? So there hasn't been a lot of appetite for these creative kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting to see and, and certainly New York in general has been a dud, right? So we'll, we'll touch on that later. And by the way, I just, while we were chatting, Google SunMed growers, um, it is a Dutch style greenhouse, mm-hmm. um, very large facility, as you mentioned. Um, funny enough, it's next to a place called uh, mushroom farms, although <laughs> probably not the fun kind of mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere in real agricultural land. And they also don't seem to have uh, any dispensaries. Mm-hmm. So interestingly, I think that'll be probably the the hardest part for these guys, right? Is that they doesn't look to me like they're vertically integrated at all. And they have to rely on other people carrying them on their shelves. Yep. No, absolutely. Um, so, okay, let's, uh, let's keep rolling. So all good points on Maryland. Um, just quickly, because you mentioned that Virginia is a bordering state, uh, you know, super limited licensed state. Um, Columbia care has two licenses. Then we have, you know, GTI has a license there. Um, Jushi has a license there. Talk to us about Virginia. I I saw some news that didn't look so positive there. Yeah. I mean, um, so Glenn Youngkin, who's the governor of Virginia, uh, recently said through his advisors that he's adamantly opposed to, uh, establishing a adult use sales model in the state. I think most people know that Virginia passed an adult use law, uh, two years ago now when they had you know universal democratic control of the legislature and the governor's mansion but since then uh glenn youngkin a republican has has won the governor's mansion and so they haven't set up a sales model and you know i have to admit this surprised me a little bit you know the resistance that he's showing is stronger than i think most people would have predicted given that he ran as a moderate republican mm-hmm. um you know ran after uh you know this adult use law had already been passed and so you're right he has you know signaled that he will be opposed Now, I think that'll soften over time. I think as more data comes in about the amount of revenue Maryland is generating from people who live in Virginia, um, I think that'll sort of help change the conversation. I think as more red states, say as Ohio, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, go go wreck, that will kind of change sort of some of the thinking and and will show GOP elected officials that it's safe to be pro-cannabis. But I mean, there's no real positive way to, to read those comments, like you said, right? That may soften over time, but it certainly seems like nothing is is imminent there. And, you know, you mentioned that it's a very limited licensed state. Uh, what they did when they passed uh, the law is they carved up the state into five what they call health service areas. Very unique in that they carved the state into five parts and then, you know, um, issued licenses to one operator in, in each part of the state. Mm-hmm. Today, there's, there's less than... 20 stores open, you know, I, I think there's about 50,000 patients registered. So, uh, you know, those registrations Amazing. have been ticking up, but but it's still pretty limited, right? I mean, especially considering it's been two years since an adult use law w- w- was passed. Yeah. And, and basically it's, um, you know, it's essentially decriminalization there right now, right? You can, you can have it, you can maybe sell it amongst yourselves, or maybe you're not allowed to sell it. I don't, it's a little unclear to me, um, but there's really no legal way to buy it recreationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and your point on Glenn, Glenn Youngkin is a good one because, you know, I think he's a great barometer for for where the moderate Republicans are. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard rumors that he wants to run for president and, you know, similar to DeSantis. Um, I just don't think these guys want anything to do with cannabis. Like they don't want to oppose it. 
They don't want to say, you know, we're anti-cannabis. Um, but I think they're sensitive enough to the winds of change um, and also to the fact that, you know, there is a very conservative part of their party, maybe it's 20%, who are staunchly anti-cannabis. Mm-hmm. And somebody else, I think it was, I think it was uh, Merida Mitch said this on Twitter recently. Um, and I think he was saying that, you know, this cocaine in the White House story, he said, this is actually not great for, you know, descheduling. Mm-hmm. And now the reality is this story probably blows over, you know, in 30 days or 45 days when we're on to the next thing. But if it sticks, right. And and remember, I mean, you know, Joe Biden kind of has, um, you know, an, an image problem, let's say when it comes to his son and, you know, drugs and that kind of stuff, he does not want to be seen to be pro drug. Um, mm-hmm. And I think Biden himself is very much anti-drug, right? So um, that's kind of the stuff that we don't really think about so much, but it can kind of, it, it, remember in these like political war rooms, they think about everything. They analyze everything 10 ways to Sunday and the juice really has to be worth the squeeze. And so it's easy for them, like, you know, Youngkin in this point to do nothing, to let a system proliferate. So like, what does that mean? He's, he's for the illicit market. Well, you know what? He's not going to get in trouble. I think the calculus is for doing nothing because somebody else created this mess and he's just, He's just letting it kind of slide, right? Um, It's discouraging, no question. Um, But, you know, it is what it is, right? And it's the reality we live with. And I think what it says is that we really shouldn't expect Republicans uh, to make any movements towards cannabis. And in some instances, like in Florida, they're actually going to try to fight um, cannabis being on the ballot. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, as you said, I think... Um, many of these moderate, you know, GOP governors have made the calculation that they have more to lose, right, from being pro-cannabis than, than they have uh, to gain. Ultimately, I think that's actually a miscalculation if you think about where the electorate is, even the GOP electorate. But I do think old habits are hard to break. And mm. you know, oftentimes politicians make what they perceive to be the safe move. So I think you're exactly right that this is what is happening. But that's why I think it's so critical that we have successful red state models of cannabis, right? Mm. Missouri or potentially like in Ohio, um, because that can can show that there is a, a productive way to do this. And that's also why I believe when we have dysfunctional programs in blue states in a California or in a New York, that gives more ammo to the wing of the GOP that sees this as, you know, Democrat mismanagement. I'm reminded of how the rallying cry you know, against the Arkansas ballot measure in 2022 um, was, hey, don't California or Arkansas, you know, mm. using as the familiar bit boogeyman, that's a lot harder to do with neighboring Missouri, you know, than, than it is with, uh, with with California. So I think it just shows why all of these states are connected to one another and how the conversation is connected uh, to, to one another and why we need to broaden, obviously, successful programs. Yep. Great point. Okay. Let's keep rolling. I'm, since you mentioned a couple of times, let's go to Ohio because I think this is, um, this is a really positive piece of news that's developing and mm-hmm. it's very under the radar. So tell us exactly what's going on in Ohio. Yeah, I think Ohio is very, very significant. And, um, you know, Ohio will likely have a ballot measure um, in November on the ballot that would legalize cannabis. Uh, the state has until July 25th to certify these signatures. So we should know in pretty short order whether it's met um, the ballot qualifications, although a ton of signatures uh, were turned in. 
Um, I think some people might be concerned that off-cycle elections are often not successful for cannabis. You know, cannabis tends to be most successful during presidential election cycles. And this is a real off-cycle election, right, um, in November of 2023, when there's very little else on the ballot. And so some skeptics might say, hey, you know, the Oklahoma measure back in March failed in large part because there wasn't much turnout. Um, but I think one relevant factor here is that it is quite likely that also on the November ballot will be an abortion rights measure. Mm. And I brought that up because that tends to generate high levels of, of turnout. And so, you know, political scientists that I've been I've been reading um, say that, hey, we expect 40 percent turnout, whereas turnout is normally 20 percent in an off cycle uh, election. And so um, it'll be on the ballot in November. Um, if it passes, it would be the 24th state to legalize. I think that's significant because just in the way that we think about things that gets us closer to a national uh, tipping point, you know, presumably 25 would be the tipping point, but that's just a natural thing for people to, to wrap their head around. And look, I mean, I think Ohio, if it were to legalize, has the potential to be a very successful state. I mean, for a few reasons that are similar to, you know, the conversations that we've just had about places like Missouri uh, and Maryland. Um, you know, there are several really big metro areas right on the Ohio border. You know, Pittsburgh in, in Pennsylvania, that metro area is right on the border. Um, Cincinnati, right? The Cincinnati suburbs bleed into to northern Kentucky and the big cities there. That's right on the border. Uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana is right there on the border. And so uh, I think we can expect, just like we've seen in Missouri and in Maryland, if uh, adult use sales were legalized there, we could expect to see very strong uh, border traffic um, and a huge impact, as we were discussing before, on normalization in you know neighboring states like Kentucky and Indiana uh, and in uh, Pennsylvania. I also think, again, you know, if this program passes and is successful financially, it will generate local political support from people that are critical in the U.S. Senate. And I think this is how the state conversation ties to the federal conversation. Uh, obviously, Sherrod Brown, who's the Democrat that leads the Senate Banking Committee, um, is is from Ohio. And so the ballot measure very well could qualify during the week that, you know, safe banking is taken up in the Senate again. And, mm. you know, the other senator is, is J.D. Vance, who I think of a lot like Josh Hawley, you know, from Missouri, which is one of these younger kind of like, you know, cultural um, you know, sort of uh, warriors, right, um, that kind of departs from some mainstream GOP positions. Hmm. The key is to convince from these people that this isn't a culture war worth fighting, right, which to me is, is the calculation that someone like Josh Hawley um, ha has made in, in Missouri. And, you know, I'll just say, you know, a, a couple more things. Um, in, in my mind, Ohio seems likely to follow the Arizona and, and Missouri model. You know, I, I worked on the Arizona ballot initiative uh, back in 2019 and in 2020, and the reason that these are similar is this is a limited license state. Um, Ohio has technically issued 130 dispensary licenses. Mm -hmm. um, only about half of them are, are open due to some local bureaucracy. So given that it's a 13 million person state, um, it's a very limited license state. And you have what I think of as a hands-off GOP governor. Now, what I mean by that is back in 2020, the, the governor of Arizona, Doug Ducey, was nominally opposed to the ballot initiative, but really was like, hey, I think this is going to pass. This isn't really worth my time. And, and I see Mike DeWine as, as similarly being in, in, in the same mold, right, as being a moderate that is officially opposed. Um, but particularly if this generates, you know, um, a, a lot of votes uh, will not sort of stand uh, in its way. And so that's why I think this is likely uh, to be successful. And um, I'm encouraged that a lot of the people running this ballot initiative are talking not just about it passing, but generating a real mandate. And Ohio is a really big red state. 
a red state that's getting getting even redder. And it would be the first big red state in this country um, to, to legalize uh, adult use. And so um, that's why I think it would be, you know, it would be consequential both for the sales numbers it would generate, but also what it shows about, you know, a pretty red, a pretty big red state that's a national bellwether. And so if you see, you know, a 60% vote in favor of adult use cannabis in Ohio, I mean, I think that's a really bullish sign uh, going into 2024. Yeah, I mean that's a so you're making a couple of great points here. So first of all, it's a off-cycle gubernatorial election in November here. Uh, it's an off-cycle election. I don't think the governor's on the ballot. I know that there are some local races, but but yeah, um, it, it is an off-cycle election. Certainly, no senators or or congressmen or or federal right um, representatives are on the ballot. Interesting. Okay, so it's a really kind of uh, off-cycle election then, right? Um, well, so, so yeah, good point that the abortion rights will probably be a big driver of, of people coming out. Um, so Ohio, I mean, 12 million people, very similar to Illinois, right? Uh, to your point, surrounded by West Virginia, surrounded by Kentucky, surrounded by Indiana, uh, all places that are very unlikely to have a rec program anytime soon. Um, and people in West Virginia might disagree, but um, then you've got Pennsylvania and then you've got Michigan, right? So, so Michigan, obviously already rec. Um, and Pennsylvania seems to be moving pretty slowly in that direction. Um, so really interesting tidbit about the fact that there's only about 65 stores open. Uh, do you have an idea right now as the ballot measure is proposed, if it were to pass, what the licensing regime would be? There's actually no specifics on on, on the licensing um, in, in, that, in that ballot initiative. So the way that it's written, it would just facilitate the transition to, to adult use. So basically, would would the existing medical automatically get to go rec, or do they have to sit around and wait for the rules? Uh, so they would they would be able to go rec. I don't think there's a specific timeline, but yes, but like clearly mentioned in the rules is that the medical operators would be able to transition uh, to adult use. Got One it. thing we'll note about Ohio is you know the ballot initiative process works a little differently in, in in each state. In some states, you can pass a ballot initiative, and then the legislature has a really limited ability to modify it and add on rules to it. Right. Um, so California is a good example of that, for instance. But in Ohio, the legislature um, has much more authority. And so we could see them adding on more rules, for instance. So that's just, I think, one tidbit to, to be aware of that there will be some legislative sausage making, um, even if this passes. Yeah, it looks like it would be a 10 percent uh, tax uh, yeah. at the register. So that, again, you know, pretty reasonable. Yeah, totally. So, um, look, Ohio, I think, is super interesting. Uh, the other interesting thing about Ohio is you have two categories of cultivation licenses, um, and they're what we call T... Actually, there's three. There's T1, T2, and T3, and that regulates the size you can get. Um, and there's a limited amount of T1s, and they, I think T1, the max is 50,000, and you can go all up to 100,000. I might, I might be messing that up. Um, and then some of the smaller ones, um, you can actually double and triple stack them if it's in your original design. So it's kind of an interesting setup in Ohio, but um, it, it'd be interesting to see. It, it seems to me like the price of cannabis has been falling in Ohio for the medical program. So I think people have kind of got ahead of the curve building for going wreck. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, as you mentioned, you know, there's the level one and the level two license. I believe the level one license allows up to 25,000 square feet of canopy, although an expansion is envisioned with adult use. And then the level two licenses are much smaller, about 3000 square feet of canopy. But as you mentioned, um, they, they can, they can stack. Um, and you know, there's, as you all, yeah, that's right. There's something about, there's like two levels 
like there's two stages to each license. So you can, you can, you start out at like whatever the number is 25. And then uh, after like a year of operating, you can apply to go bigger. Right, right. But no, there's two, there's two numbers. So I, I can't remember what it is now, but I think it's like 25 and 50 and then like, you know, three to five or something like that. Yep. Yeah. And as you said, you know, there, there has been an oversupply issue in, in, in California, uh, in, in Ohio and. Um, oh, the Freudian slip there. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, and so I think like Maryland, right. Um, it's uh, adult use is needed, right. Uh, or, or, you know, is, is a real lifeline to that, to that industry. Yeah. Look, and I think the nice thing, you know, we talk about Ohio, like almost every MSO um, has a presence in Ohio, right? Like, so, so all the kind of big five are in Ohio and, and fully stacked and ready to go. You know, there's maybe little tuck-ins here and there, um, but that's a program that's going to be very beneficial for the MSOs. Totally. Yeah. I mean, as you said, there's the big MSOs that have a presence there, the names you would think of like the GTIs and, you know, the Veranos, um, you know, that, that have a robust footprint. And there's also just other operators that are, I think, really good operators that are a little bit under the radar, for example. So, for example, Nectar Markets is building out a real robust footprint in Ohio. I mention them because they're the largest uh, retailer in Oregon and have operated in one of the most competitive markets. You know, they have a lot of retail skill. So I think they'll do well. Um, there's a company like Vexed Science who, you know, if Ohio were to transition to adult use, their two dispensaries there would generate a ton of revenue. And that would make a really meaningful difference, you know, relative to the revenue that they generate. Um, and you might say something similar about a, a body and mind, um, for example. So I, I think there, there are um, operators of, of different sizes that are interesting there. And then we will see, I think, many operators you know, particularly if this this goes adult use, try to get up to that five store cap, right? So Merimed, which just opened its first store, you know, I could see a world in which it very quickly ramps up to to five stores and tries to reach the cap. Yeah, I, I think. Look, I mean, that would definitely be uh, a hotbed of M and A for sure. And I want to give a shout out to Pharmaceutical RX, who is a really you know high quality organic producer of flour, who has also won several stores organically. Um, and I've talked to them several times, I think they're great operators. Uh, and I think Ohio, you really could be where people start to, you know, you start to see some M and a kind of similar to what Terrasend is doing, um, mm-hmm. in, in Maryland. Uh, but so look, I mean, that's a really promising one to keep your eye on. Although, you know, even if it passes in November, you're probably not going wreck until sometime in 24. Right. So, so TBD, um, let's talk about, let's, let's jump across the pond. Let's, let's talk about Germany. So. Germany was, you know, something that people got very excited about. Um, you know, I, I was kind of keeping an eye on it and, and hoping it would get somewhere. Um, and, you know, it, it seemed like it was it was chugging along and then kind of uh, all of a sudden, you know, took a big step backwards. Walk us through, like, where are we at today with Germany and how different is that from what we thought was going to happen? Yeah, um, Germany is, is moving forward with, you know, what it's calling Plan B. Um, which, I mean, in my opinion, is a pretty weak adult use model. I think it will take several years, many years for Germany to develop into a meaningful adult use uh, market. And I, I think the outcome um, in Germany has been pretty disappointing. I know others have a different take and you know, I'll, I'll highlight their perspective. But from where I sit, this has been a pretty uh, disappointing outcome. 
you know, over the past year and a half, I've actually got to meet with most of the members of, of the health committee in the German Bundestag, um, and which is the, the German parliament. And, you know, the difference between the conversations we were having a year ago and where this bill has ended up is, is, is really quite uh, striking. So I was initially very optimistic based on the conversations we were having about this is a much narrower bill than, you know, the initial ambitions of many of the people who are crafting the law. Now, um, you know, the, the reason for that is basically the opposition from the EU and the UN proved too strong. Mm. And to me, that calls into question how much progress can be made in Europe over the short to medium term. There are other countries in Europe that we can highlight who have also kind of uh, stagnated. And so that was the reason that this model was paired back. And, you know, I'll, I'll walk through the model in a second. Um, and I also think some of the context here is that, you know, the European Court of Justice had previously really reprimanded Germany for some of its other policies on things like data protection. And so I think there was the idea that we didn't, you know, they didn't want to poke uh, the bear again um, in, you know, at, at the EU level. Hmm. Um, but, you know, to talk about the law, I mean, if, if you were to highlight its positives, I think, you know, the positive thing that you can say that many other people have said is that, you know, as a result of this draft law, which, by the way, has has not yet passed, still needs to pass, um, is that, uh, you know, all of, you know, cannabis active related substances has been removed from Germany's list of narcotics and transferred okay. to a new cannabis act. Now, why does this matter? Um, this will arguably have a significant impact on the medical market. Right. Um, right now, you know, there are a ton of barriers in Germany's medical cannabis market for patients that are trying to get registered um, for prescribing doctors. Those barriers will be removed. Right. So, um, you know, I as a patient, as a German patient, can obtain a regular cannabis prescription rather than what is called a, a specialized narcotic prescription. So hmm. in short, one of the good things is that we may see increased um, registration in the medical program. But I think if the U.S. is, at, you know, any indication that just scratches, you know, um, the, the surface of the market. So that's a good thing, but it isn't, say, a super radical change. Now, you know, the, the law that has been proposed, and again, it hasn't been passed, basically has two pillars. They're calling it, you know, pillar one and, and pillar two. And, you know, the first thing about pillar one is it was supposed to pass this year. Now they are saying that, you know, um, estimates are that it'll pass in early 2024. And so we are seeing a similar kind of pattern of delay that we've uh, kind of seen before. Mm -hmm. And essentially under, under this pillar one, it's a non-commercial model. They say, hey, you know, if you are over 18, then you can possess, uh, you know, up to 25 grams of cannabis for your personal use. You can cultivate up to three plants. But hey, by the way, you know, you can only do it like, uh, you know, you can't do it within a couple hundred meters of certain sensitive uh, uses. Um, and, uh, you know, like if you if you consume cannabis like nearby, then fines and criminal charges will continue to be imposed. So it's a, a very limited non-commercial kind of like possession and personal uh, cultivation model. That's one piece of pillar one. Mm -hmm. And the, the draft bill that was just introduced also as part of pillar one proposes the idea of, you know, what are called cannabis growers associations that can have up to, you know, 500 different members. And if I'm a member of this association, then I can get a certain number of grams, you know, per month for, for personal use. I mean, I, and I can get some, some seeds. Um, but again, if you just look at the way the zoning is, 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 is written, the zoning restrictions are, are written for these, uh, for these cultivation uh, associations, uh, basically nowhere in Berlin, for example, would be permissible because all properties are within, you know, 200 meters of a, of a sensitive use. So mm. that's pillar one. It's really limited. Um, the, the short story on pillar two is that there's no timeline for it passing. It's supposed to be a more commercial pilot sales um, program, but it's unclear who will be supplying uh, this cannabis 
the, the details are extremely vague. And so I think it's really hard uh, to, to get excited about, quite frankly. Okay, so what I'm taking away for this, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that how we're looking at this today is that the medical program's opening up. So it's very real, right? And that's a benefit. Um, and if you can get insurance to reimburse you, then we see the value of that for sure, right? Um, but on the other side, it sounds like you're getting these kind of like quasi gray market um, uh, uh, clubs, which yeah. you know sound like to me like uh, what they have in Holland, mm-hmm. uh, because in Holland, you know, we we think about it as being legal, but it's really not. It's actually. Um, it's really more of a form of decrim where it's not legal to grow it, but they kind of turn a blind eye to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what it sounds like where there's all these restrictions and, you know, it's, who knows how it shows up at the club. It's not exactly being tracked seed to sale, right? So if it's being grown in people's basements or if it's being grown in, you know, a warehouse in Berlin or outside of Berlin, who knows, right? Um, and where is the product coming from? We're not exactly sure, but as long as it's not making waves, you know, we're going to basically let it go. Exactly. I mean, as you said, right, it lends itself to gray market activity. I think that's when we lose support for cannabis, right? People tend to think of cannabis more negatively when it operates in a semi-illicit or illicit economy, as it does in New York um, or in California. We've seen in other countries like Spain, for example, how, you know, clubs have developed that operate in this gray market environment. And now they're the subject to backlash, right? Because they're not not sort of complying with, with certain regulations. And that has set the reform movement backwards. So I think by taking half a step, you actually do yourself a disservice. And a better way to normalize this would be to establish, you know, a, a functional legal market. And so you know, I, I can appreciate the the benefits of expanding the medical program and, you know, how that might benefit certain operators that have a stake there. But from where I sit, it's hard to see this as a really meaningful step forward. And it, it follows a pattern we've seen across the world, whether it's Colombia or Mexico or Spain, where there's this talk about legalizing cannabis, but, but countries ultimately don't uh, pull the trigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, fair point. Okay, so um, I think we can leave it there on Germany. So I'm, I'm not particularly excited about what I'm hearing. Um, I mean, listen, it sounds like a big step forward for the country. Um, but from the businesses and, and, you know, potentially some backlash as well, we'll see, right? Um, but uh, it sounds like from a business opportunity, it's not particularly exciting. And I think that de facto decriminalization probably makes the medical market less attractive as well. It's just my feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, now the, the kind of caveat there is if insurance pays, then, you know, it could be, it could be somewhat interesting. Right. Um, so, so look, coming back to the U S let's talk about Pennsylvania. Uh, mm-hmm. this is a state that, you know, it's been kind of flirting with maybe, you know, going legal, uh, legalization to the legislature legislature. Uh, I've been hearing about this since 2020, 21, 22, and, um, still nothing. Right. But now I think, We've had a change of the guard. The The House has fallen to the Democrats and the Senate is Republican. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Correct. And um, the governor is also Democratic. Mm-hmm. So how's it looking? Like, is there any chance of something happening here? I, I heard some rumblings about some kind of medical cannabis bill passing that that help, was supposed to help some independent growers out. Help help fill me in. Yeah. You know, so I think there, there are two main topics here, which are, you know, the introduction of an adult use bill and then a series of of proposals to make the medical program more permissive and and more open. So on the adult use push, 
You know, as you noted, this is the third year in a row that we've seen a bipartisan adult use bill introduced. You know, it was introduced by 21 in 21, 22 and in 23. When it was first introduced, it was a real novelty. Now it's kind of par uh, for the course. So it's it's the third year it's been introduced. I don't think this bill will pass this year, but every year these proposals are taken a little bit more seriously. Um, you know, we were just discussing Ohio and Maryland, right? So Pennsylvania already bordered two adult use states, which were New Jersey and New York. As we've discussed, those are adult use states, but didn't really have a ton of stores open. But still, you know, it bordered two adult use states. Um, Delaware legalized a few months back. And so that's a third state that Pennsylvania um, bordered. But as we just discussed, Maryland started adult use sales recently. Um, and the traffic from Pennsylvania into Maryland kind of like it's been with New Jersey has has been pretty robust. And so I think particularly after Ohio moves, um, Pennsylvania will be highly likely to legalize cannabis, say sometime in mid or late 2024. Um, just the mere fact that it will be surrounded on literally all sides, you know, Delaware, Maryland, Ohio, New Jersey, New York by adult use states, I think will will create additional pressure. And, you know, I've, I say this in part because, you know, we have seen in other states like New Hampshire, for example, that there have been, you know, members of the GOP that were adamantly opposed to cannabis that ultimately relented when they realized how impractical it was to be surrounded on all sides uh, by adult use states. And mm -hmm. so, you know, as you noted, the issue here right now is something that we see in a lot of states where you have a Democratic governor but one branch of the legislature is held by the GOP, right? You can say that about Wisconsin, right? For example, that has a Democratic governor that's been pro-cannabis for a long time, but the GOP held, um, you know, one at one of those houses. Or, you know, that used to be the case in Minnesota before um, in, in the most recent elections, they, they obtained a Democratic trifecta. So we've seen this pattern play out where the public is with the Democrats on cannabis legalization and where most of state government is in favor of it. And there's one kind of holdout, again, in New Hampshire, that holdout was a Republican. And that support really starts to crumble when you are surrounded um, on, on all sides. So um, I don't think the bill will pass this year. It's a little bit too late in the game, but I think there is really good reason for optimism um, next year. And again, I say that in part because if you look at a population map of Pennsylvania and you see how much of that state lives in the Philly metro area um, and in the Pittsburgh metro area, you know, you'll see that there are far fewer people that live in the middle of the state. So many of the state's residents will be within an hour drive, right, of an adult use dispensary. And so I think that will become a, a part of the conversation. So this is obviously a little bit more speculative, right? Um, we can't say for certain what will happen, but I think the cards line up in a really favorable way for next year. Okay. So, so, so a couple questions for you. Um, so you've mentioned that this is the third year in a row that the, the, the legalization measure has been introduced, right? Mm -hmm. How has it changed year over year? Like, have you, has it started to morph, you know, into, into being more social equity, for example, or like, what's the direction of the evolution of the bill? You know, I think the basic architecture of the bill has remained relatively consistent. Obviously, as part of the conversation, there are some legislators um, that are calling for a more expansive social equity program, right? So the, the De Democrat Sharif Street, who's pushing for this bill, often mentions this. Um, but this is a bipartisan bill. And so kind of by definition, it will meet in the middle. And so um, there's a Republican by the name of, of Dan Laughlin, who's, who's been a proponent here. So I, I think the main thing there is you know, we are seeing it, it's pretty easy to introduce, you know, a, a bill from just one party. But when there's a bipartisan stamp on it, I think it makes for for more moderate policy. And I haven't seen the bill evolve in in, in you know, all too meaningful of ways 
um, over the past few years. And I think, I mean, to be fair, right, these bills previously have been messaging bills, quite frankly, right? Like the mm. first or second time they're introduced, it was a messaging bill, but now it's turning into, I think, more of a, a realistic possibility. Got it. Okay. And uh, like to your point about, you know, governors and standing in the way of things and like going back to young kid, like it, it strikes me that like, it's very easy in politics. Like there's a, a tremendous amount of momentum um, in doing nothing. You know, like you can just sort of ride the wave of status quo, whatever that may be. Um, but then when that wave starts moving in a particular direction, um, you got to think hard about standing in front of it. Right. Mm -hmm. So once the cannabis cannabis legalization train leaves the station, you know, whether it comes to a ballot or whatever, um, you don't want to be the person to stand in front of the train. Right. That right. that becomes a very um, again, it, it's easier to do nothing. Right. Mm -hmm. Similarly, um, like in Virginia, it's easier for them to do nothing on this issue. They don't have to own the mistake of the of, of the illicit market. No one's really challenging them on it. Do nothing and, and let it move forward. So. Um, Pennsylvania, more or less, it seemed like it's been kind of do nothing. Um, but they're kind of maybe slowly, slowly making progress. Do yeah. you have any idea? Uh, so sorry, going back to, to what we chatted about earlier, um, that's the adult use piece, but there's also been some proposed changes to the medical program. Is that right? Yeah. So there've been a series of proposals that would expand the medical program and improve them in meaningful ways. Okay. I don't think it would be transformative, right? Um, obviously as adult use, but they would, they would be helpful. I think it's important to note that these are just proposals at these stage, at this stage, but there, there's a few of them. Um, one of the proposals would, would eliminate the qualifying conditions in Pennsylvania's program. Basically it can be any medical condition. And we've seen that that increases. That would be massive. Yeah, that, it's that, quasi wreck that, at that point. It's yeah, it, it's it's certainly you know uh, much closer to it. So that would be big. Right now, I think there's a couple dozen qualifying conditions. This would essentially say, hey, like we don't we shouldn't interfere with doctors' ability to prescribe. They can prescribe it um, for 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 anything. So okay. um, I think it's too early to know if any of these will pass, but that that would be significant. Mm -hmm. uh, th there's another proposal that would basically just make the renewal process easier, less of a pain, would waive like, you know, the fees, right, in many instances or reduce them, you know, maybe relatively small, but, you know, it would just ease the friction in the renewal process. Yeah, yeah, that, that's uh, meaningful. It's meaningful. Uh, there's another proposal that would allow edibles and inhalable products. I mean, that's, that's a, a significant one. And, um, you know, that, that would expand the program in, in Pennsylvania, obviously create more interesting options. And, you know, this is an example again, of how I think neighboring States matter. You know, a lot of people in Pennsylvania in the Northwest corner of the state drive into New York and are buying edible products on Indian reservations. Hmm. Right. And actually many of the legislators cited this fact. They're like, my, my constituents are going over the border to New York and buying edible products in Indian reservations. Why can't we allow these legally regulated products here? So, and that sorry, when you, when you mention, um, inhalables, um, are like vapes are still sold, right? Um, yeah, I think, I, I don't know for sure. I know there's some categories of inhalable products that are. Yeah, I, no, I, I got it here. I think it's, uh, it's so I, I'm on the website. So yeah, you can buy vapes. I think it's joints you can't buy. So you can't buy pre-rolls. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I believe that's, that's PA. Yeah, you can't buy, you can't, I, it was either PA or Ohio, but I'm, I think it's PA where you can't buy pre-rolls. Yeah. I, I certainly know edibles of all kinds are, are, are banned. And then, yeah, yeah edibles certainly. for sure. Yep. And I think also it's, it's pre-roll. So that's probably what they mean by inhalation. Yep. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. Um, 
And then, you know, uh, finally, another one of these proposals would allow, you know, independent, what are called independent grower processors to open up a, a, a couple of dispensaries. So right now, you know, there are 25 um, grower processor licenses in Pennsylvania. And the way that the law was originally written said that, hey, only five of those licensees can become vertically integrated, right, can sell directly to patients. Um, in other words, 20 of those licensees are not vertically integrated. This proposal would allow those 20 independent grower processors to open up up to two dispensaries uh, in, in the state. And I, I think that would be somewhat meaningful. You know, right now there's about 170 dispensaries in Pennsylvania, which is really not very many considering the size of the state and its, its population. And so I think there's certainly more room uh, for, uh, obviously depending on where they're located, uh, for these stores in the state. And so, um, you know, that would not, uh, you know, uh, that, that might, you know, impact certain operators negatively, but I think overall it would be beneficial for, for the program if that were to pass. Yeah. Also, I'm not sure if, if, um, yeah, I'm not sure. It sounds to me like there's probably more than five vertically integrated companies in Pennsylvania. Uh, of, of those that have the grower. Yeah. There's certainly more than five, right? Tons of the MSOs are, are vertically integrated, but of those 25 that are, that are class, uh, class classified primarily as grower processors, I believe just five of them. Um, can be can be vertically integrated. As interesting, well. interesting. Okay, so look, I think if we if we think about these bills, and you know, who knows what happens with with any one of them, but it's sort of like a I would call it a a ten to twenty percent change of the program, right? Like edibles is maybe ten percent of the market, right? Maybe a little more. Um, pre rolls is actually pretty significant, probably something like ten to fifteen percent, depending on the market. So you put those together, you're kind of like twenty, maybe twenty five percent, which is which is meaningful. Um, you know, the, the telemedicine portion, again, maybe it's 10%, um, or, sorry, not telemedicine, the renewal of the license. Um, so, so all of these things, you know, on the margins could be interesting. And if you give, you know, 20 growers, two stores each, right, you get 40 new stores on top of uh, 170. Again, you're like 20% change of the program, right? But you yep. stack enough 20% changes onto it, it gets pretty meaningful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. So obviously, obviously, we'll, we'll wait to see. But I think legalization is a big one to watch there. Um, and if Ohio goes, then you know you get a little more excited about PA. So yeah. um, coming to the end here, I just want to make sure we we touch on some of the big stuff. So you touched very quickly on New Hampshire. Maybe just just high level talk about why that might be important. New Hampshire is obviously a very small state, and so one would think it would have a seemingly small impact. I think it's worth highlighting for a few reasons. Right. If Ohio legalizes in November, it'll be the 24th state. And, and by the way, if Ohio does that, then 55 percent of Americans will live in an adult use state, which is pretty significant. Hmm. Um, New Hampshire is highly likely to legalize early in 2024. And if it were to legalize adult use, it would be the 25th state to legalize. And I think that is meaningful because that brings us closer to a national tipping point. Mm -hmm. I think we will start to see many articles that say half of the country or more than half of the country has legalized cannabis. It's a very simple story for people to you know, kind of get their head around. And so right now the legislature is you know, putting together a bill that they hope the governor will sign in early 2024. Some people have expressed skepticism about the bill because it would involve a state run model. But again, I think less important than that model is that this would be the 25th state, which, as we've discussed, I think optically is significant. And, you know, just a small thing, this would be right around the time of the presidential primaries next year, which happen in you know late January, early February. And in this small state, I think it could become a, a topic of, of conversation. So, you know, not suggesting that New Hampshire will change the world, but I do think getting to that 25th state is significant. 
And it also, you know, is a clear example of a GOP governor who was very anti-cannabis, despite popular opinion, for many years, but relented when, you know, New Hampshire was finally surrounded on, you know, five or six sides by adult use states. And I think, you know, again, the reason this is important is I think we will see a similar pattern playing out across the U.S. over the next couple of years, right? Um, Indiana will soon be surrounded by three states, which is Illinois, Michigan, and Ohio. Uh, we've discussed how Wisconsin, right, is now surrounded by three adult use states. Uh, Iowa is now surrounded by three adult use states, Minnesota, Missouri, and Illinois. So I'm not suggesting those states will change overnight, but that really just changes the political conversation in those states. And New Hampshire is evidence of, of how someone can make an about face when, you know, clearly they've, they've kind of lost the war. And I think that'll happen over the next two years in, in other parts of the country. Yeah, that's uh, that's great intel. And, and um, one thing you mentioned as we were chatting earlier was the idea that this legalization would happen right around the time of the presidential primaries in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And uh, I think that's such a great tidbit, you know, because as we come into 24, you know, everything becomes political, everything becomes a talking point. So the fact that New Hampshire could be the 25th state um, and it's going to happen right around that primary time, uh, you better believe they're going to be asked about it. And, you know, everyone's going to have to decide how they want to answer this question, right? It's going to be very, very interesting um, to see what DeSantis or what Trump says about this. Um, And if everyone will just kind of dance around it or if somebody will kind of take the bull by the horns. um, And I I really have no idea. Right. But it's that will be really interesting to see. Don't forget, it was uh, Kamala Harris in the vice presidential debate, which I mean, who watches the vice presidential debate? Right. but she was the one who looked in the camera and said, we were we are going to legalize cannabis. Right. And that was a huge shot in the arm for the sector in 2020, um, right before the election at a time when it was kind of meandering. Mm-hmm. So um, it can be sometimes places you don't expect that kick off a catalyst. Uh, and in our industry, like I think I think a lot of what we saw last week was when there's some good news coming, even if it's just a morsel of good news, it causes the shorts to cover. And so what you get is you get some pretty dramatic price action in the span of 24 or 48 hours. Um, and that can get traders really excited about something, right? It can, it can, it can start the, the legs of a rally. So I think that's something to really watch out for. Um, Hirsch, yeah. we're running out of time here, but there's, uh, you know, we would be remiss if we did not talk about the big kahuna, you know, the beast in the Southeast, Florida. Talk to yep. us about Florida. What is going on there? What, where are we at in the process? Yeah, I mean, I think most folks know that um, the campaign in Florida to legalize adult use has collected more than enough signatures. Those signatures are currently being uh, reviewed by the Florida Supreme Court. I'm sure most people know. Um, we should know later this year, like whether the Florida ballot initiative has has passed. I've seen, you know, in previous rulings that the court sometimes missed their deadline. So I think it's hard to know when it'll happen, but we should know, I think, you know, potentially later this year, certainly by early uh, next year. Many people know that this is a very um, political process and a political court that has overwhelmingly been appointed by Ron DeSantis, who, as you noted, has expressed his opposition to cannabis. I think that court is looking for any reason to invalidate this ballot measure, as I think many people have discussed before, because of the impact that has on turnout. Um, We should should remember the reason Ohio is is happening this year is because they didn't want it to mess with the 2022 and 2024 Mm. That's why it's off cycle. So yeah, everybody knows this is a, a super political process, right? Um, and and I w- sorry, I, I just want to give my two cents is like, I, I think, well, so remember they're making a decision, the court's making a decision on this 
theoretically politics should not be in their mind, but we know it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Supreme Court of, you know, the, uh, the highest level, right, in the U.S., not the Florida Supreme Court, but the Supreme Supreme Court, um, clearly is is not afraid of getting political, right, and, and has some political motivations to it because, you know, they are human and they're appointed by a political process, right? So um, I don't think it's surprising that the Florida Supreme Court would also be political. And don't forget, they decided the 2000 election, right? <laughs> so uh, let's, you know, let's not forget that. But so so the point is, is uh, that I had on it was that, hey, if DeSantis is looking like the front runner, then maybe this is more permissible, right? Um, because he's going to carry Florida no matter what. But I actually changed my tune on this. And I think now, like, they just don't want this to be an issue. So if DeSantis is, is even going to be the nominee, which really we don't know, right? There's really no indication. Um, even then, he'd probably get asked about it again and again and again if his home state is voting on it, right? So um, I just, I'm very uh, unfortunately concerned that they're going to find a way to shoot this thing down, even if it's illegitimate. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a fair uh, concern uh, for sure. I think if Ron DeSantis had his way, this would not be on the ballot. We've seen these courts make political decisions in the past, uh, so I, I think that is a, a really valid concern. I will say, you know, as many people have discussed, the way that this initiative was written seems to go to great lengths to adhere to what is called the single subject rule, which determines whether this is a constitutional measure. So I think this was written in like the best possible way mm-hmm. it could. To survive the muster, but again, it's it's speculative. Although it, it should pass, you know, th- this is America, so we can expect, uh, you know, the unexpected. Um, but <laughs> I think if it were to pass Supreme Court, review, that's in- you know what that's what I love about watching my favorite show, America. You know, the writer <laughs> the writers always keep us guessing. There's no way to know what's going to happen next. Totally, it's certainly a drama. That's for sure. <laughs> the uh, drama, a circus, a comedy. It's, it's all of the above, no doubt. Sorry, um, keep going. But if it were to pass this review, my opinion is that it is time to get excited. It is time to get bullish. Now, okay. much is made of, of the fact that there's a 60% margin, right? Obviously, that's much harder than 50%. But, you know, the Florida medical program passed with more than 70% of the vote um, back in 2016. Um, polls show strong support for cannabis. Will it be an expensive campaign? Um, I believe yes. But in a presidential election year that has high turnout, I think it's very doable to get 60% of the vote. You know, we got 60% of the vote in Arizona four years ago. And, you know, barely, uh, barely 60. Yeah. But, you know, you got like 60.1 or something on the dot. Right. So a little room to spare. Um, (laughs) But I I bring that up because, you know, in the previous in the 2016 um, ballot initiative process in Arizona, um, only 50% of the vote, right? Um, the, okay. the campaign got 49% of the vote, actually, Fair. less than 50 lost. So that shows, I think that shift is 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 not atypical. That is the shift that is happening in every state, you know, to, to some extent, blue or red. And so I, I think, you know, um, just as in Ohio, I think even a deep red state um, will support legal cannabis. So in, in my mind, the much greater risk is the Supreme Court review. I think if it passes Supreme Court review, you will see many of these companies that have a huge stake in the outcome, obviously true leave, but operators that haven't really participated and supported yet, like a Verano, right? Uh, like in an air, despite their financial challenges, recognizing how big this would be for them, given the number of stores they have there. So those are obviously the two risks, 60% vote and Supreme Court review. But if we, if we um, pass Supreme Court review, I think there's good reason to be optimistic. And um, yeah, you know, listen, let, let's be very clear on this. Florida represents 
the greatest opportunity for the cannabis industry and the MSOs at large. And this is something you should absolutely be paying attention to because if Florida flips over, it is the single largest catalyst for basically the entire uh, public company domain of cannabis. Absolutely. I mean, as you said, it's a huge market. As been said before, it gets so much uh, tourism, right? And, and and will be a really healthy market and is likely to approach this in a more business-friendly way than other states. So all of that is, is very true, right? Um, but I also think the impact that Florida would have on the rest of the Deep South, which is kind of one of the few islands of prohibition remaining in the country, specifically Alabama, Georgia, and Mississippi, would be huge. And, you know, people probably know that the Florida panhandle, um, which is arguably the most conservative part of the United States anywhere, a super conservative area, is culturally indistinguishable from Alabama and from Georgia and from Mississippi, hmm. which are just short drive over the border. And I think that matters. You know, there's already remarkable progress happening in the Deep South. You know, the, the Mississippi uh, medical cannabis program is, you know, obtaining registrations at a rapid rate. Obviously, Georgia took a decade to get set up, but we're finally seeing stuff open there. And so we're already seeing organic progress in the Deep South. When Florida goes adult use, again, given the border state phenomenon, um, I think the traffic into the Florida panhandle, which, again, I will just emphasize, is the most conservative stretch of the country, arguably, um, will, will be huge and will change the dynamics in, in the Deep South. So I think that matters in addition to anything we mentioned before, the size of the market, tourism. And I'll just say if Florida and Pennsylvania both pass adult use in 2024, obviously this is speculative to some extent, right? We've talked about how Pennsylvania has introduced three bills and it hasn't passed in those three years. And, you know, we've talked about the risks in Florida. So no one should suggest this is a done deal. But in my opinion, this is reasonably likely if these two states both pass in 2024, then no matter who the next president is, whenever they're inaugurated in January 25, more than two thirds of Americans will live in a state that has legalized adult use. Because Florida and Pennsylvania are huge states mm -hmm. and we're at 50% now and we'll be at 65%. And so I think the, the writing will then be on the wall. And in conjunction with the fact that most states will then have legalized adult use, I think, you know, we didn't really talk about federal reform here, but that is the bottom up change that leads to federal reform in a meaningful way. Okay. All right. So, um, yeah, Florida... Do you have an idea of, of if Florida passes with the current ballot measure, what has to happen? Like, does it automatically convert over med to rec? Or I, I think it's pretty a pretty limited measure, right? Does it still need some uh, some regs to be written by Congress? It is, an, it is an extremely limited measure, and that's because of the single subject rule. So yes. basically what it would do is it would um, enable that transition from medical to adult use. I have seen the time period six months, but I, I don't know if, if, if that is codified yet. So that's, that's all it would do. And it would give the legislature the ability, the right to issue more licenses, but not, would not require them to. So you're right. The, the Florida ballot measure has been written in a very narrow way because that's the only way right, to, to get it on the ballot. And so there will likely be some legislative sausage making going forward. But with that being said, I expect states like Florida and Ohio, as I've mentioned before, to follow that like Arizona kind of Missouri limited license, quick transition, um, hands off uh, model. Get out of the way and let it run. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, wouldn't wouldn't that be nice, huh? Okay, Hirsch. As we're coming to the end here, um, I'm going to give you the last word on. You know, I don't know. Give me give us your thoughts. I mean, we, we went through a lot here today. There's a lot of positive developments here, although it's been lost in, you know, a lot of disappointment, I think, and compressing fundamentals. Um, 
at large, you know, you're, you're a consultant in the industry, you're knee deep, neck deep and all this stuff. Like, what's your feeling? How do you feel today compared to a year ago or two years ago? Like, what's your outlook? Yeah, I mean, look, there, there's no denying that the last few years in the cannabis space has been a traumatic experience, right? Like, I, it's just been incredibly difficult. So I think there, there should be no brushing over of that fact. But I mean, I think the state level story is very compelling. And just to restate what we've talked about before, we're now seeing states open up in the heartland of the country, which generates more robust and broad based political support at the federal level, to the extent that that has been our death knell over the past few years, it's only logical to think, right, that that will change dynamics. Another one of the major pain points in the cannabis space has been bad public policy at the state level. One of the benefits of new states coming online and developing new models for regulating cannabis is that, you know, as America often is, it's there are laboratories of democracy and eventually we develop better policy. And so, you know, even little things like the fact that Missouri has come online will change the conversation in, in Illinois regarding delivery and mm. drive throughs and the ability to see and smell the product, right, and taxation. So mm. uh, look, I, I, I think the state level fundamentals are shaping up in a really meaningful way. And it's worth spending some time to think about how all these puzzle pieces fit together. And so that's why I'm an optimist over the medium term, even though obviously it'll continue to be a slog, right, in, in the short term. And look, just to cap off that thought, you know, maybe the fact that when we go wreck in Maryland, um, you know, we're starting at prices that are a little more sustainable, you know, that $45, $50, you know, or maybe even less than that. I think it's more like, you know, 35 to 45, let's call it, um, with value options. Um, you know, maybe that that is more sustainable. That's definitely more sustainable than us starting off at 65 in Illinois, right? And us valuing companies, um, you know, because they're generating these gigantic margins and dollars, but ultimately it's short-lived and it falls apart. Um, you know, that that boom and bust is not healthy for us. Whereas if it's a a more reasonable starting point, even if prices come down, you know, there's scale and stuff like that, um, and there's more sustainability to it, that's probably a better business overall and a better environment for investors, you know, a sort of a, a smoother ride than, you know, this knee-jerk up and down that we've had, right? So um I think even though there's a lot to be frustrated over, and certainly we have been, um, I think ultimately, you know, to your point, the building blocks of these businesses um, and the fundamentals uh, maybe needed to be reined in a little bit. Um, and we are making some really good progress uh, throughout some some pretty critical areas. And and I think what you're talking about today is so important. I encourage everybody to follow Hirsch on the socials. I'll, I will definitely include his his LinkedIn and his Twitter uh, in uh, in this in these show notes. And Hirsch, I just want to thank you for joining us today and uh, always being a subject matter expert that I can rely on. Thanks, Manish. This was fun. Thanks, everyone. Until next time. This podcast is a general communication and entertainment being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan, feature, or other purposes. Any examples used in this podcast are generic, hypothetical, and for entertainment purposes only. None of Cannabis Investing Network or its affiliates are suggesting that the listener or any other person take a specific course of action or any action at all. Communications such as this are not impartial and are provided in connection with advertising and marketing of products and services. 
Prior to making any investment or financial decision, an investor should seek individualized advice from, from a personal financial, legal, tax, and other professional advisor that take into account all of the particular facts and circumstances for an investor's own situation. By listening to this communication, you agree with the intended purpose described earlier. Opinions and statements of financial market trends that are based on current market conditions constitute our judgment and are subject to change without notice. We believe the information provided here is reliable, but should not be assumed to be accurate or complete. The views and strategies described may not be suitable for all investors.